Have you ever picked up a big, ripe, red, juicy apple and bitten into it only to discover that it had a huge rotten spot in it? I remember when I grew up, I uh, grew up in northern Ohio, and there was an apple tree in our side yard. Now, my dad didn't spray the trees for insects, and so when the apples were ready, uh, they were red, they were ripe for picking, remember how hard it was to find a good one. See, most of them had worms or rotten spots that were clearly visible. Uh, one time I thought I'd really finally found the perfect apple. There were no holes in it that I could find, and there was uh, nothing to give away about uh, what, I, what I was about to experience. I call this the Great Deception of 1985. I took a great big bite out of that apple, and before my teeth connected, I realized that I had a mouth full of rotten, infested worm. In fact, as I pulled that apple away from me, I saw the worm staring back at me, and I, I'm pretty good at math. I can look at that apple, and if I see the worm's face in the apple, then I know that I got a worm's butt in my mouth. I was chewing on a worm's butt. Now, trust me, that apple didn't stay in my mouth very long. And eventually, I learned the secret of how those apples had gotten so rotten. You see, the worms, the worms don't actually bore in from the outside. As it turns out, these stinking worms, they lay their eggs on the blossoms of the apple uh, before the apple even begins to form. And then when they hatch, they're already inside the apple. And they've got a smorgasbord of food from which they can eat their way into adulthood. And then they eat their way out of the apple, and that's how we get these wormholes. Stinking worms. Creep in unnoticed. And they secretly bring about their destructive rottenness. Well, imagine with me this morning a church like that. See, the early church... And 2 Peter in the New Testament was still in bloom when the enemy Satan, he laid his deceptive eggs of destruction. And by the time Peter wrote his second letter, there were already many, many rotten signs in the church where false teachers and false prophets were already doing their dirty work. So turn, if you would, this morning with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 for our third message in the Stand series. Now, if you were here last week, we learned what it means that the words in our Bible were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But quickly this morning, just at the risk of coming across as blasphemous, uh, I'm not trying to um, you know, um, startle you or try to get your attention. I just want to show you a part of the Bible this morning that's not inspired. Okay, This is not shock value. I'm not being silly here. But let me show you the part of the Bible that's not inspired. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Okay, That's it. That's the uninspired part. See, the chapters and the verses, uh, this numbering system, those are not inspired. In the 13th century, hundreds and hundreds of years after the last book of the Bible was written, uh, this really, really smart man by the name of Stephen Langton, he was from Paris, he divided the Bible into chapters. And then nearly 300 years after that, a printer by the name of Robert Stevens, he divided the chapters into verses so that he could keep track of things. So this original manuscript, it was, it was written as a letter, and it wasn't broken into chapters or verses. So you asked me this morning, well, why in the world is that significant? Let me tell you, it's because this is one of the places in the Bible where a chapter division can actually be a little distracting. See, Peter's been preparing his readers with these words of encouragement, with instruction, and, and then he's given them assurances that the Scriptures have the most solid of foundations and that no prophecy of Scripture was written out of the imaginations of men but that prophets of old wrote and spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
And in the original letter, what we know as chapter 2 was really not a standalone thought. So, so let's actually go back for just a second um, to the last two verses from last week of chapter 1 and ignore the chapter division and read the first three verses of chapter 2. 2 Peter verse 1, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So here's the quick Cliff Notes version of what we just read. Men, moved by the Holy Spirit from God, spoke. But false prophets also arose among the people. See, this is one continuous thought this morning. Now, what do we know about the Apostle Peter, who's the author of this letter? We would refer to Peter as the Apostle Peter, meaning that he had actually been one of the witnesses of Jesus after Jesus was crucified and rose again. In fact, church history tells us that Peter himself was actually crucified shortly after this letter was probably written, and he was cru crucified for refusing to recant his story that Jesus Christ had died but had risen again. Now, if we were to go back about 40 years earlier, Peter himself would have actually heard Jesus give a similar warning to his disciples in Matthew 24. Uh, it was also in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus said to the disciples, guys, watch out for false prophets. And now here's Peter who, who somehow knows that his time on earth is limited. He sends a warning to the church. It's as if he's saying, Jesus told us to watch out for these false prophets and they're here amongst us. And here's how you can spot them. This term that Peter uses in the original language for a false teacher, it's defined as someone who spreads an erroneous Christian doctrine. See, these teachers, they were belittling the significance of Jesus' life, Jesus' death, his resurrection. Some claimed that Jesus couldn't have been God. Others claimed that he couldn't have even been a real man. But Peter's use of the term false teachers throughout this chapter, the way that he uses it, strongly suggests that these false teachers were more than simply someone who happened to teach error out of the ignorance of the truth. Okay, it happens all the time. Our kids ask us the impossible question. We don't have an answer, and so we make something up. That's not what was happening here. Peter implies that they knew full well what they were doing, and they were purposely trying to mislead others. Let me stray for just a minute from this letter that Peter wrote. Let me take you back to a parable. Parable is just a fancy word for a story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. Let me read it for you. Matthew 13, verse 24. This is Jesus speaking. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and, and sowed tares or weeds amongst the wheat and went on his way. But when the, when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have all these weeds? 
He says to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, well, do you want us to go then and gather up the weeds? But the master said, no, lest you gather up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather together the weeds and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the disciples, they are actually uh, left here scratching their heads. They have no idea what Jesus was trying to say, and so a little later, when they got him alone away from the crowd, they're like, Jesus, you've got to explain this story to us. So a few verses later, in chapter 13, uh, verse 34 of Matthew, This is what Jesus answers them. Jesus said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares, or the weeds, are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who has sowed them, he's the devil. And the harvest harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Verse 40, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing of na- and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. See, Jesus in this parable, he points out that amongst the Christ followers or the sons of the kingdom, there's going to be servants of the enemy. And God will allow this to continue for some reason. We don't know why. Listen, if I'd written the Bible, I'd have written it a little differently. But God's going to allow them to continue until the end of the harvest. And at that time, those who are faithful will be gathered into heaven, and those who are working for the enemy will be cast into outer darkness. So let me ask you a question this morning. You remember my apple story, that stinking worm, okay? Are you the stinking worm in the apple, or are you the good seed in the story that Jesus just told. See, listen, are you, are you giving your time and energy to the service of the Lord? Are you wasting your time and energy with your own selfish desires? Are, are you committed to the cause of the King of Heaven? Are you just showing up for services each week to catch a religious ride for an hour or so? See, these worms and these apples, they serve themselves They devour the fruit for their personal pleasure, but these good seeds grow and they mature. And listen to this, they hold the life of the next crop. So this morning, the question, how do you distinguish a seed-sowing Christian from these stinking worms? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Peter also gives us a list of some characteristics to look at when he describes the false teachers back in 2 Peter chapter 2. And so this morning, I want to call these red Warning flags. Now, after I moved from Ohio at the apple tree, uh, my high school years were spent in Michigan, and we actually lived right near uh, the shores of Lake Michigan, and if you went to a public beach to swim, they had a warning flag system. So if they had a green flag out, it meant it was safe to swim. If they had a yellow flag out, it meant it was only safe to swim if your mom wasn't there. And if there was a red flag, it meant no swimming, okay? You could actually get pulled out of the water and given a fine if you were caught swimming with a red warning flag. And so Peter gives us some red warning flags when it comes to false teachers. And the first one this morning is this. He says they operate in secret. Verse 1, he says there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. 
like that stinking worm. They know that air cannot stand the light of truth. So what do they do? They resort to working behind the scenes. Now listen, there's a great principle here that can be applied much more broadly than just talking about false teachers. Truth has nothing to fear from investigation. So if one believes that they have the truth, they'll not object to an open and fair valuation. Just last week, I received our annual report back from our CPA as he worked through the annual audit of our finances. And sometime this week, if you're a member, you'll actually get an email from me letting, me, uh, letting you know that you can actually request a copy of this audit. Why? Because we have nothing to hide. And Peter implies that this truth is especially true of our Christian teachers. If a teacher is not willing to let his doctrine be examined openly by others, Peter's saying, let that be a warning sign. Let me give you another aspect of their secretness. It's that they're sneaky. Okay, see, listen, people don't do things secretly by accident. Secrets have to be planned. They have to be thought through in advance. Or what? They don't stay a secret. But false teachers pretend to be what they're not. And so just like that stinking worm, they creep in or they try to creep in unnoticed. The infamous cult leader, uh, Jim Jones, is is an example of a false teacher who used this tactic. Uh, If you're my age or older, you'll remember Jim Jones. Uh, He was the cult leader that uh, we have the the term, don't drink the Kool-Aid. He had gotten his uh, entire uh, followers, all of his followers, to drink poisoned Kool-Aid and to commit suicide together. But people who knew Jim Jones testified later that early in his ministry, he actually seemed to be teaching all the right stuff. In fact, I, I learned this this week, early in the 60s, he was appointed as the director of Human Rights Commission in Indianapolis, just a couple hours drive from here. He was responsible for uh, a great thing. He was responsible to integrate churches and hospitals and restaurants. And the change of his, in his message, though, was almost indiscernible on a day-to-day basis to his followers. But he was such a deceiver that eventually he talked an entire congregation of nearly a thousand people to drink poison Kool-Aid and to lay down in the grass to die. Now, I'm not going to try to imply this morning that all false teachers will take you down the road of drinking poisoned Kool-Aid. But Peter is trying to warn us that false teachers are sneaky and that they're manipulative. You see, Satan only has to put a drop of poison into your soup to ruin the whole batch. See, he's smart enough not to pour in enough to alert you by a bad taste or a bad smell. And so we see this morning that it's not dumb people, it's not stupid people who are snared by false teachers. It's spiritually immature people who are ignorant of the word and through spiritual neglect don't have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's why every single week, Uh, At the start of this service, we put up a memory verse, and we challenge you on a monthly basis, and we we actually read it during the service, the monthly memory verse, challenge you to learn that, to hide it in God's, hide God's word in your heart, because we know that by hiding God's word in your heart, that your senses are being trained to discern good and evil. So we see this morning, the first warning flag, they operate in secret. The next red flag that Peter gives us concerning these false teachers is this. He says they're greedy and they will appeal to you on your basis of greed. Verse 3, by covetousness, they'll exploit you. 
Now, covetousness isn't really a word that we use too often. It's not like when we were in grade school and we would take a word and we would write it out three times and use it in a sentence. So I took this phrase and I looked it up in this big Greek dictionary that sits on my bookshelf. It literally says that these false teachers are so eager or greedy for gain that they'll defraud you. Now, now some of you might not know this about me, but I used to sell drugs. (laughs) No, it wasn't the kind of drugs that Pastor Brad used to sell. I was actually a pharmaceutical sales rep, and I sold antibiotics. And at the time, this was probably 15, 18 years ago, I lived in Columbus. And I'd often go into urgent cares to visit my doctors. And I, I lived on the east side of Columbus, and there was this huge church down the road from where I lived. Now, if I told you the pastor's name, uh, many, of you would, many of you would recognize his name because you can often see this guy on TV. Uh, he's doing these wild, over-the-top, crazy healing services. Now, this pastor and another famous TV pastor, his name was Benny Hinn, you've probably heard of him, they're partners in crime. And Benny and Hinn would often come into the church down the street from where I lived, and he would uh, perform a healing service. In fact, just a few years ago, uh, I met someone in ministry here locally that actually knew these two yahoos. And the story goes that whenever Benny's coffers ran low, that he would perform one of these healing services, and sometimes they would haul in over $100,000 in love gifts in just one service. Now, now listen this morning, I'm not on my soapbox, this is not a statement for or against healing. Here's what I will tell you though, if God does choose to heal, it's always for free. Now, now I have to tell you the funniest thing about this story, I, I was visiting a doctor in an urgent care literally a few blocks away from this particular church, and I ran smack into this pastor waiting in the, in the waiting room. Now, he had his huge sweatshirt on with his hoodie pulled down over his face, he was trying to conceal um, I, I think he's trying to conceal who he was, but I caught a glimpse of him. I knew immediately who it was. And so when I finally got back to see the doc, I asked him about it. And the doc rolls his eyes and says, uh, this guy comes in here all the week, or all, all the, every week, begging for free samples of antibiotics. And he says, am I the only one that sees the irony that this guy is coming into me asking for medicine? But here's my point this morning. This pastor made a game of enticing people into emptying their pockets at a chance to get something that their flesh desired, which was usually health. But he often offered power and influence if the price was right. So I know know what you're saying this morning, like, listen, that's nonsensical. I would never fall for that. I've seen that stuff on TV. It's crazy. It's over the top. Let me jump ahead uh, to verse 14. Let me steal a little bit of thunder from Pastor Brad when he comes back to this passage in a couple weeks. Uh, verse 14, Peter says, They, the false teachers, have a heart trained in covetous practices, enticing unstable souls. Well, l- listen to what Peter's warning us against. He- he's saying that false teachers, they're looking for people who are going through trials and discouragement. He's saying these false teachers are looking for people who are, the, who are on the edge of becoming impatient with God about something. He, he says these are, false teachers are looking for people who've been genuinely hurt or wronged and maybe even by someone in the church. I think there's somebody in this room represented by one of those three things. He's saying, hey, people, uh, they're, they're looking, these false teachers are looking for people who've had a great financial setback. See, that's what Peter means when he says unstable souls. He's not saying that they're, um, he's not saying that we're mentally deranged, that we're handicapped in some capacity. He's saying, listen, this, they're looking for people who are having their souls shook up. 
They're looking for people who are knocked off their stride. People who are beginning to doubt or question. Peter says, listen, there's always going to be teachers. There's always going to be counselors or mentors or study leaders. There's always going to be that new group meeting down the street. There's going to be some book, some best-selling program. Just like Pastor Brad said a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, there's always going to be something or someone offering you a quick fix. But Peter tells us that they have their heart trained in greed. Everything in their message, he says, is geared to giving people what they want and right away. It's all glued to human satisfaction. There's no waiting. There's no mention of the holiness of God. There's no mention of suffering for the sake of Christ. And so Peter says, don't follow them in their enticing words. So he says, uh, red warning flag number one, they operate in secret. Number two, he says, they're greedy. And then finally, Peter gives us one more warning about false teachers here. He says, uh, we just saw that they will exploit you. And now he says how they'll exploit you. He says they'll exploit you with deceptive words. Verse 3 in the uh, NLT, the NLT is a uh, translation of the Bible that Pastor Sean uses when teaching the students. Uh, This verse says, in their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. A few verses later in verse 18, Peter further drives this point home when he says that these false teachers will speak with great swelling words of emptiness. He says, hey, they're going to be smooth talkers. They're going to know exactly what they're doing. Now, if you look up the word deceptive uh, in this original language, if you look it up in that big dictionary again, uh, sitting on my desk, that word deceptive or false is actually the word plastos. And it's where we actually get uh, our original... um, English word plastic. Now, if you go back and trace the word plastic in the English language, it originally had the connotation of something that was not completely authentic. See, plastic items, they're made to look uh, like another substance. They're made to look like wood. They're made to look like metal. They're made to look like porcelain. Listen to what a commentator said this week. I read, uh, thus, plastic at first glance, he says, deceives consumers. In a similar way, false teachers deal in phony doctrine. Theology is not really based on biblical truth, but only molded by false reasoning to appear genuine. This reminds me of when I was younger and more and more items were being sold that were being made of plastic. And I can vividly remember uh, hearing my grandpa say with disgust, well, that's not real. It's just plastic. Does anybody in here remember the old Colt 45 style cap guns? That's right, they were made of metal. They were these big, heavy, clunky things. They had a working uh, trigger and hammer, and you could put a roll of caps in them. And uh, if you ran out of caps, listen, you could just swing it around like a club. And if you had one of those guns, you never lost a game of cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians in the backyard. In fact, nowadays, our toy guns, they're not even allowed to make them look real, right? They, have, they make them out of plastic, and then they put a little orange cap Uh, on the end of the barrel telling you that uh, what they're making is fake. But Peter warns us, he's saying, listen, don't be deceived. Be on your guard. Here's the good news. Chapter 1, Peter just told us that in Scripture we have the very words of God through which we can filter anything that comes out of a teacher's mouth. If a teacher can't give you a book and a chapter and a verse, but instead appeals to you on this uh, theological mumbo-jumbo, uh, beware, Peter's saying. He's saying, watch out. Just this week, someone told me a story of someone that's in their life of spiritual influence, and they were trying to explain something to them. And when asked where that was in the Bible, they said, well, it's not really written anywhere in the Bible. You, it, it's kind of a mystery. You're just going to have to trust me. Beware. Watch out. Here's some more good news. 
more grounded you are in the truth of the gospel, the less likely you are to be deceived. Listen, living out of a renewed mind as described in Romans 12 too, is your best defense. False teachers are not going to go away. Listen, the prophet Jeremiah warned about them in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes along and warns the disciples against them in the Gospels. Peter clearly recognized and warned of false teachers in the early church. And we don't have to look very far to look around us to see false teachers everywhere. And in the book of Revelation, the apostle John tells us, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of all the false teachers that Satan's going to use to confuse us and deceive us and to ultimately divide us. They're not going away. Beware. Watch out. Well, in closing this morning, I want to tell you the two biggest lies that I think Satan's using to deceive the world today. First lie that he, wants, that he so desperately wants you to believe is this. He wants you to believe that you have what it takes to get into heaven on your own. That when you die, if, you, if the good in your life outweighs the bad in your life, that you'll spend eternity in heaven when you die. Do you realize that the world's largest single religious body has over a billion living people clinging to this hope-so kind of faith? Contrast that with what the Bible actually says when when Apostle Paul says, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing and regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that all of our good works, they're what? They're filthy rags your heart break the thought that over a billion people that are alive today at some point will stand before God on judgment day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. Here's the other lie that Satan will do everything in his power to make you believe. He wants you to think that there's always tomorrow. See, see, maybe you understand that salvation is a free gift, that all you have to do is ask Jesus uh, to forgive you for all your sins, that you just ask him to, uh, or allow him to be your savior, but not today. I'll do it tomorrow, or, or maybe next year. See, I just have to get through college, or I just want to get married and settle down, and the excuses start to pile up. Or, or maybe you're like my wife, whose testimony was for nearly 10 years, People thought she was saved. She knew she wasn't, but she didn't have the courage to admit it openly that she didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And it wasn't until she was in college that she finally asked Jesus to forgive her of her sins and to be her Lord and Savior. Apostle Paul fought this very issue 2,000 years ago when he says, now's the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Pastor Sean Acre is a chaplain for the Warren County Sheriff's Department. And one of his jobs is to notify people when a family member's died. And about a year and a half ago, he wasn't able to make one of these calls, and so he asked me to fill in for him. In fact, this is how it went. He calls me up and he says, Hey, Chris, uh, I was wondering if you'd like to go make a death notification for me. I was like, Well, uh, if you phrase it like that, no, I would not like to. And he said, oh, Okay, okay, w- would you please go and uh, do this for me as a favor? And so um, it was a young girl who'd been married less than a year and her husband had just been killed on a motorcycle, uh, in a motorcycle accident. And, and so I did what any self-respecting man would do. I said, hey, uh, hey, Shannon, I got some errands to run. Will you run some errands with me? And so I uh, waited until I got her in the car, and then I told her what we were going to do. And uh, we, we would both drove her to, over to this apartment, and I remember when we drove up, there, the police were already there, and they were in the parking lot. And I remember a police officer looking at me, and he said, whew, I'm so glad that the professionals are here. 
And they all got in their cars and left. And they left Shannon and I standing there to knock on the door all by ourselves. We had no idea what we were doing. And that poor girl, she was still in her PJs. And we sat with her for three or four hours uh, and just uh, loved on her and, and tried to get her to talk about her husband. They hadn't even been married nine months. And let me assure you, when she woke up that morning, she had no idea that tomorrow was not a reality for her husband. And you can ask any pastor, and he can tell you story after story after story of lives that are cut short. Stories of people who woke up in the morning with no clue that they would not be going to bed that night. But Satan desperately wants you to believe that you have plenty of time to settle this issue. So this morning, if this is you, I beg of you, I plead with you, won't you accept Jesus today? During the Revolutionary War, a loyalist British spy appeared at the headquarters of a Hessian commander, Colonel Rawl. If you remember, the um, uh, Great Britain used uh, mercenaries in the Hessian army, and so there was this Hessian commander, Colonel Rawl, and a British spy shows up carrying an urgent message. General George Washington and his Continental Army had secretly crossed the Delaware River that morning and were advancing on Trenton, New Jersey, where the Hessians were encamped. The spy was denied an audience with the commander, and so he frantically wrote his message on a piece of paper. And a porter took the note to the Hessian colonel, but because Colonel Rawl was involved in a poker game, he stuffed the unread note into his pocket. When the guards at the Hessian camp began firing their muskets in a futile attempt to stop Washington's army, Colonel Rawl was still playing cards, and without time to organize, the Hessian army was captured. The battle occurred the day after Christmas of 1776, giving the colonists a late present. It was their first major victory of the war and a turning point in the American Revolution. Here's why I tell you that this morning. Please don't walk out of here this morning with this urgent message of the gospel stuffed in your shirt pocket. Beware. Be on your guard. Look out. And won't you ask Jesus to come into your heart today? Would you pray with me this morning?